0: Hey, and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. This week, in episode 50, we're going to look at another sea-related story, but this time one associated with World War II. It's not exclusively Australian either, as war-related stories often include the Commonwealth joint efforts. In this case, much of the action actually takes place in the Haraki shipping channels that approach Auckland Harbour in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but many of the crucial players were Australian I know that, being a World War II-related story, and largely taking place in New Zealand, it might have been of interest to my podcasting mate, Thomas, from the history of Otoarowa, New Zealand. But his history podcast is being presented in a chronological order, and this story's a long way off for him, so I'll get in first and tell it from the Australian perspective. There's nothing like beating the New Zealanders at something, eh? (laughs) Now, I've chosen to look into this story because, over the Christmas period, I was chatting to an old friend, and somehow we got talking about a relative she had who had been a deep sea diver and was involved in a very interesting salvage operation. It seemed like a remarkable tale to have in one's family history, and sure enough, looking into it, it is a cracking story, certainly one that I'd never heard of, though I guess it might be well-known amongst divers and Navy fans. It triggered my interest for another reason. Some years back I'd walked out to the lighthouse at Wilson's Promontory in southern Victoria. The ranger there took us and another small group into the lighthouse buildings and we were chatting about the history of that lighthouse site. The prom was used as an army training site during World War II and there were buildings sited right at the top next to the lighthouse, including the viewing shelter still there today, which were used by the military for surveillance over that part of the Bass Strait. Now, one of the people in the other group was a man researching military radar stations around Australia's coast for a book that he was going to write. He told us a story which at the time would have been kept from the public, as were many activities during the war. He claimed that the blokes in the radar and viewing station there one day noticed a merchant ship in the strait on the horizon zigzagging around a bit and acting a little oddly. They made radio contact and the ship identified itself as a friendly merchant ship. They claimed they had lost a man overboard and were looking for him. The Australians offered to send out help, but soon afterwards were told, oh, they've found their man, we're retrieving him now, so everyone stand down. (laughs) Soon afterwards, the ship sailed off, and apparently no one was too concerned. But a few days later, another ship making its way across the area hit a sea mine and was badly damaged. Clearly, the ship looking for its man overboard was actually a German mine-laying vessel. I was astonished at that story. I don't know much military history, though of course I was aware we'd had Japanese subs into Sydney Harbour and that Darwin and other northern places were bombed during World War II. But I don't think I knew that we had German mines being laid around our coast, let alone mines that actually caused damage so close to home, and so far from the epicentre of the European theatre of war. I was amazed. Clearly, the Germans didn't want all the Antipodean produce supplying the British, and they did their best to disrupt the shipping. The story I'm going to retell today involves another casualty, and this time in the shipping channels of our neighbour, or New Zealand. Just before we get stuck in, though, I'd like to thank Julie S. for her support this month, and I just checked and saw another couple of great reviews. You people are the best. Thanks so much. Ooh. Jeff Maynard has written a very thoroughly researched and interesting book on this story called Niagara's Gold, and I will give you the full details of that book at the end of this episode, as I'm drawing much of the material for this retelling from his book. I was also loaned a 1950s copy of Taylor's Spoils from the Sea from the family of my friend mentioned earlier, so a grateful thanks to them. Taylor's book was full of interesting quotes directly from the men involved. Now, as the Second World War was ramping up in Europe, and the British were soon to be facing their darkest hour, a small part of the German plans for maritime disruption were being put in place around Australia and New Zealand. On the 14th and 15th of June 1940, a German raider, the Orion, disguised as a merchant or passenger ship, was busily laying 228 mines in the Hauraki shipping route on the approach to Auckland. The Orion then continued on into the northern Pacific, where it engaged and harried a number of vessels, sinking 11 ships in the 16 months that it remained in the area. In his book, Maynard talks at length about the German raiders, but the detail that grabbed me about these raiders was that not only did the crews disguise themselves as civilian passengers strolling about on deck, even dressing up as women, but that they would sometimes build a second, false funnel to disguise their outline. It was someone's job to sit inside the fake funnel and burn oily rags to produce smoke. (laughs) Both Australia and New Zealand were contributing to the Commonwealth war effort in Europe by providing military personnel, equipment and funds, but another very important contribution was the supply of resources and food obviously this supply had been going on since the colonies had been producing excess and regular sea trading had been underway since the 1800s in 1875 james mills set up the union steamship company and began operating a number of vessels around and later out of new zealand by the 1900s they were regularly trading and carrying passengers between sydney melbourne and the new zealand ports All of the Union Steamship Company vessels had been given Maori names, until their business expanded, when they took on a contract for the Royal Mail Run between Australia and Canada. In 1912, they launched the Scottish-built RMS Niagara, which in this case was named to flatter their new Canadian customers Beginning its mail runs in May of 1913, the Niagara performed beautifully in the following years, delivering His Majesty's mail and comfortably transporting people and goods across the globe and between Australia and New Zealand. Maynard notes that up to June of 1940, the Niagara would have travelled 2,295,000 miles. That's well over 3.5 million kilometres. Four days after the Germans had finished their operations, the Niagara sailed into Auckland Harbour, fortuitously missing all of those newly laid mines. No one was yet aware of the danger lurking there. The usual smooth operation was underway, offloading, reloading and readying the Niagara for the departure on the next leg of their regular circuit, later that same night. The Niagara was carrying supplies and personnel relevant to the war effort, and Maynard notes... There were, on this outward voyage to Canada, a few military men, some Canadian government ministers, wool buyers, nurses and soldiers, businessmen and civilian passengers, and a large crew, totalling 348 on board in all. The Niagara had various deck spaces for accommodation and recreation, and secure rooms for storing valuable goods, along with that Royal Mail, and there was plenty of capacity for standard cargo and even refrigerated produce. On this occasion, the Niagara would also be carrying some special cargo for the war effort, and so they cast off, as expected, around midnight. About 2 a.m., the Niagara was steaming through the Haraki Gulf, back out to open waters, when it struck the German mines. Shocked, the confused crew immediately gathered to investigate the damage and figure out exactly what had just happened. It was soon clear there was substantial damage to the ship's hull, and that they were in dire trouble. Maynard identified the mines as German Y-type moored contact mines. An anchor was dropped to the sea bottom, securing the floating mine a little below the surface. He described its rounded surface as having horns protruding from the casing. These softer metal horns cover glass tubes containing sulfuric acid. If they are hit by a passing ship and the horn is bent, the glass shatters and the acid runs down the tube to make contact with small carbon and zinc plates. This contact produces a charge. It's a little chemical battery being activated. About 1.8 volts of current then runs along a thin platinum wire through mercury, and this results in the detonation of the high explosive within. Absolutely amazing. A little onboard chemical reaction factory. Ah, if only this ingenuity was used for good instead of evil, eh? (laughs) Maynard also notes the process of the glass breaking through to the detonation would usually take one or two seconds, and this proved to be very helpful, because the bow, likely the strongest part of the ship, would also be most likely to strike any mine first. But with the short delay, and the ship moving across the moored mine, it should ensure that the explosive occurs under the hull, or the side of the ship, a place that it would likely cause much more damage. Pretty quickly, the crew knew that the hull was compromised and that the ship would sink, and so the lifeboats were readied and the passengers and crew abandoned ship. Around 4.30 a.m., all were in life rafts, watching with disbelief as the Niagara sank beneath the water off Bream Head. It was another couple of hours, though, before rescue from shore reached them. Quote, Niagara's only apparent fatality was her ship's cat, a five-year-old grey and white long-haired Tom called Ozzie, The news of the sinking was shocking. Because the war seemed so far away, not everyone believed that the ship had struck a mine. It was decided by barroom lawyers that there must have been an internal explosion, perhaps of a bomb set in the hold by a saboteur. Even after the Prime Minister, Peter Fraser, announced in Parliament that the Navy had found mines in the area, the legend persisted. Taylor recorded that after the Williams team found the wreck, they confirmed mine damage both fore and aft, so it seems that the Niagara made contact with two floating mines. It's all the more amazing then that all persons survived. Though it was not made public, the Navy did then sweep some areas, finding about eight more mines, but it wouldn't be until later in 1941 that they undertook more widespread mine sweeping. After all that time, the mines were beginning to break their moorings and float about, and some by then had washed up around the Hauraki Gulf. Maynard reminds us that on the same morning the survivors were being brought to shore, that's the 19th of June, Churchill, half a world away, was making one of his famous speeches in the House of Commons. The battle for France is over. I fear the battle for Britain is about to begin. So the resources and support from New Zealand and Australia was to become all the more important as Britain was under intense pressure now for its survival. What was not at the time widely known prior to them sailing was that the Niagara was carrying more than the mail on that trip. In a special strong room, some eight tonnes of South African minted gold had been loaded in Sydney and was on its way to America, as payment from the United Kingdom to the then neutral United States for munitions the Niagara was carrying the approximate value of £2,500,000 in gold. So the shock of the sinking was one thing, but the loss of the gold quite another. The Bank of England, who owned the bullion, and the Commonwealth Bank in Australia, on their behalf, was responsible for its transport, and they immediately advised the British of the sinking. Maynard reports that the response from the Bank of England came the following day, Quote, Admiralty here suggest inquiries should be made as to the possibility of salvage. Would you kindly consult the naval authorities in Melbourne on this subject and let us have their views? Unquote. It seems the Naval Board in Melbourne, Australia, made inquiries in each Australian state, advising Niagara sunk in 60 fathoms. Request information whether there is diving equipment suitable for working at this depth available in Australia. Unquote. But at this time there was not the capacity available, and the Navy had to advise that they were unable to provide equipment or expertise for such a deep dive. We are reminded that at this time, deep-sea diving was really not a thing. The equipment and knowledge to do so safely was only then being developed, and it was a tremendously dangerous environment. The Bank of England, though, was certainly not willing to give up. John Williams and John, or Jack Johnson, had some years earlier proposed working together on a salvage of a boat that had sunk in much shallower waters in the port of Melbourne. United Salvage Propriety Limited was formed to undertake that work, and though they were able to recover the bodies from that wreck, in the end they were never given permission to attempt the full salvage in Melbourne. Meanwhile, the bank was keen to get someone to attempt a salvage on the Niagara, and so they offered any successful team a percentage reward of any gold recovered. The United Salvage Propriety Limited thought they might be up to the task, though at that depth it would be groundbreaking and dangerous work. But there was an awful lot of gold there, and it warranted a mighty effort. Maynard records there were 295 pine boxes, each containing two gold bars, so a total of 590 ingots. At the time when a working man might earn £2 a week, each bar was worth £4,230. Even a small percentage of that amount would be an attractive prospect. So Williams flew to New Zealand, and he chartered a ship with an echo sounder to try and locate the wreck. I'm not sure of the state or accuracy of echo sounders at that time, but he received an optimistic result. He told the bank that he'd found the wreck, sitting upright on its keel, and confirmed it to be at about 70 fathoms. He was later to discover, though, that the object on the seafloor that he'd mapped was, in fact, a natural formation, and his syndicate would spend a great deal of time scouting around amongst the rest of the mines before they did finally locate the wreck, northeast of the delightfully named Hen and Chicken Island Group. The vessel was lying somewhat on its port side, but at least the bullion room was upwards, meaning they would have less to blast through than they might have had it lay on its starboard. But, believing he had its location sorted during that first investigation, he submitted an optimistic report to the Bank of England, suggesting they might be able to undertake the salvage at a cost of around £28,000 over a six-month period. The bank agreed to his suggested terms and drew up a contract. United Salvage would design, manufacture and supply the salvage equipment required and the bank would pay the wages of Williams and his crew, plus other expenses such as the ship and operating costs, to the amount of £30,000. They also negotiated a reward of 2.5% of any gold recovered. Maynard notes that such a percentage was exceptionally low, and that other salvages often demanded up to 50% of the value of recovered goods in such high-risk ventures. So William's motivation and willingness to settle for so little was interesting, and he may have seen the attempt as their patriotic duty to some extent, in wartime perhaps. Anyway, it seemed like a sweet deal for the bank. The contract was signed in October 1940 and he then set about getting the diving equipment designed and built and gathering his crew, but that would not prove to be an easy task. In 1940, working underwater below 200 feet was virtually unknown. There were various deep water designs for individual diving suits, but none were really reliable and entirely safe. At 200 feet, suits would need to be inflated to stop the water pressure from crushing the lungs. In the days before mixed gas breathing was safely in use, compressed air was the only option and there was the highly dangerous risk of nitrogen bubbles forming in the bloodstream – the bends. At that depth, a diver could work for only about 10 minutes before slowly coming to the surface over the following 30 minutes to safely decompress, so doing any kind of physical salvage work would be excruciatingly slow, All other difficulties aside, William's crew would need something that could operate at up to 600 feet. The only way that seemed possible was to have the diver sealed inside a solid pressure-resistant vessel. If they could design portholes to withstand the pressure, the diver might be able to see what was happening at the salvage site and might communicate to the ship, but he would not be able to operate any machinery himself, like the robotic arms that we see on deep-sea vessels today. Those on board would need to drop hooks and nets from the surface with only verbal instructions from the diver. This was going to be a very tricky task in a tidal, moving sea channel, often with poor visibility. Still, you know, gold. (laughs) Maynard recorded that a similar salvage had just been done this way, at 396 feet depth, by a German-Italian group salvaging gold from a sunken ship called the Egypt off the coast of France right before the war. Williams had apparently read about that effort and he felt they could do something similar despite needing to work in even deeper waters. He approached engineer David Isaacs from Melbourne to design a dive chamber that would allow them to do the same. The diving bell would need to be smooth and narrow and able to be inserted into holes blasted into the Niagara's decks and allow the diver inside to view the gold and direct retrieval taylor writes that isaac's design was a great improvement on the bell used by the italians and quoting bill johnston explained why because a diver can remain below in it for as long as 10 hours if necessary under almost ordinary atmospheric conditions the iron ballast is attached to the bottom outside the chamber itself in such a way that by unscrewing a couple of nuts on the floor it falls away in an emergency john or i could release this balance blow our water ballast, and float the bell to the surface. Or oh, so we hope, unquote. Now this chamber was itself to be state-of-the-art and something special to be able to work at such extreme depths. Bill Johnston described it looking like something imagined by Jules Verne, quote, Though really it is no more than a huge dome cylinder in which one man can stand in comfort and two just squeeze. In the dome are fourteen circular windows of quartz glass, some for observation and others on top to admit light. It stands nine feet six inches high and weighs nearly three tons. It is made of specially cast manganese bronze and mild steel, strong enough to resist the pressure of 350 pounds to the square inch at 750 feet. We will enter through a circular hole in the dome over which a lid will then be clamped by four large holding down bolts. The idea is that the diver, wearing a shock helmet, oxygen mask telephone headpiece, and the warmest clothing he can lay his hands on, will enter the bell in the hold. As soon as the lid has been fastened, down the bell will be hoisted by a steel holding wire wound by a winch and swung over the side. There is nothing much to it in theory, but we can't help wondering how it will work out in practice. Both the cylinder and dome sections were fabricated at the Thompsons Engineering and Pipe Company Limited in Castlemaine, Victoria. Engineers Australia has an entry for Thomson's Engineering on its Engineering Heritage Register, stating, quote, Thomson's of Castlemaine was a very significant manufacturing business during its approximate 100 years of operation under the Thomson's name. It has historical significance for the important role it played in the development of an engineering and manufacturing industry in Australia, unquote. They also note, quote, a collection of over 50,000 engineering drawings and several pieces of Thomson's designed and manufactured machinery is held by the Molden Vintage Machinery Museum, unquote. And one of those drawings is the Isaac-designed diving bell, manufactured under great secrecy at the time. The actual diving bell itself is on display at the Castlemaine Visitor Information Centre. There are a number of very small portholes in the bell to allow the divers to see the vessel and the accompanying salvage machinery and direct their actions. But at the time it was constructed, there was no safety glass as we know it that was designed to withstand such pressure. Isaacs did the best he could from first principles, but he was never entirely sure that the glass would withstand the demands. And its first real test was the live one at sight. They also had a phone set up to communicate reliably with the surface. The telephone layout is superb, certainly as near to perfection for two-way communication as could be expected. As John and I will have to wear an oxygen mask when we take our turns in the bell, the research station at the Postmaster General's Department in Melbourne has rigged for us a laryngophone. This gadget fits over the Adam's apple and transmits the voice vibrations while the mouth is left free for breathing. The respiratory system depends first on the infusion of the chamber, with oxygen before submerging, and secondly, on the tightly fitting rubber mask connected to a chemical, soda-lime container. As the diver breathes out, his poisonous exhalations are purified, Maynard provides more detail, saying the diver's mask would scrub the carbon dioxide out with only minor periodic releases of fresh oxygen. All sounding very Apollo 13, isn't it? (laughs) But this meant that the diver could stay in situ for up to 10 hours. I'll put a sketch of the inside of the chamber from Taylor's book on the website. The metal construction was well proven in engineering, but they had some concerns, as I mentioned, about the ability of the glass, withstanding the pressure for extended periods. To date, nothing suitable had been definitively tested and proven. The Johnson brothers seemed to have a good level of confidence in Isaac's diving bell, but a test on site would be required before the men used it. Williams insisted that it should be tested in 88 fathoms of water, that's 528 feet or 161 metres, with sandbags approximately equal to the weight of the men. The test was completely successful, no trace of leakage was seen and the glass windows suffered no damage. As the equipment was being constructed, Williams recruited his crew. Of course, Johnson would be the lead diver and would be accompanied by his brother Bill, also a diver, and the highly respected Captain James Hurd would be Williams' second-in-command, responsible for managing the crew, though he wouldn't be able to join them in New Zealand until January. They brought other men that they'd worked with before from Australia and also recruited a few locals, once on-site. When Williams left for New Zealand to prepare the start of the ambitious mission, it was a big deal. The Australian Prime Minister at the time, Robert Menzies, was urging Williams to undertake this impressive task for the kudos of the country, saying, quote, Succeed in this, and you and those under you may have any honour you'd like to name, unquote. So Williams would have been feeling pretty well supported at that time. On arrival, he had trouble finding any available vessel that they could use for the salvage endeavour. With the war underway, every suitable ship seemed to be already put to work so he had to resurrect and repair a derelict vessel called the Claymore. But even with the repairs, the Claymore was always marginal, and it proved to be cold and damp and uncomfortable. With the equipment and personnel arriving from Australia in November, they arranged their supplies and materials, and were ready to head out to the identified dive site on December 9, nineteen forty interestingly they had to await the mine after all this time the naval base in Auckland was supposed to have done that before they arrived and considering the Niagara had already been lost in the area it does seem a little cavalier not to have done that to make the passage safer for any ships coming and going but finally on the 14th of December the Navy did a sweep about a mile radius around the wreck site that Williams had identified and several mines were located and detonated or sunk there but there were many more mines still anchored across the Gulf, and they would prove to be a great safety hazard throughout the year ahead. As it turned out, the seafloor anomaly detected by the echo sounder turned out to be a natural formation, as I mentioned earlier, and the Claymore crew then had to spend many more weeks searching and trawling the seafloor to identify exactly where the wreck had settled. This process also put them at risk of snagging more of the mines, which they did on numerous occasions. Once, a mine mooring had become entangled around the Claymore anchor chain and was being dragged across the manned diving bell, putting them all at great risk of detonation, before they were able to mark its position and report it to the Navy. Maynard records Johnston writing, "'Suddenly I heard another sound, not on the telephone but against the bell. Then I saw what caused the scraping sound I'd heard. The bell had fouled a wire rope that I could see pressing against one of my glass windows.' It was not round like our wires, but square. The corners serrated like the blade of a hacksaw. And suddenly I remembered. This was not from the ship, but from the sea bottom, the mooring wire of a German mine, serrated like this to cut through a minesweeper's trawling wire. The bell was fastened to enough high-explosive to blow me and the claymore sky-high. Johnson let the ship know what he'd seen, and it would be reported, but he had to wait to see if the snag would clear itself before he could make for the surface. "'It was agony waiting. I was watching the wire, hands over my ears in an instinctive, if futile, protection. I saw the dark bulk of the mine, the shackle where the wire was secured close to my face. The bell was rising slowly, and then, scarcely daring to breathe, I saw the mine sway in front of me and drift away slowly. I was sweating and shaking.' Despite it disentangling from the diving bell, they weren't clear of it yet. The mine instead then coming close to the boat, causing everyone on board great anxiety. Indeed, with all the drama at close quarters, and the Navy later detonating it way too close for comfort, sending shockwaves through the already rickety claymore, two of the crew would afterwards take off. It's just too stressful all around. And Johnston was so shaken, he felt the need to avoid diving again for several days so it was a pretty hairy work environment. The risky business and difficult work environment and the substantial delays required continued on throughout their salvage operation. Throughout December, as the Navy swept their new work area, the crew practised lowering and using the diving bell. Mid-January 1941, to Williams' great relief, another crucial member of the salvage crew finally joined them. This was Queenslander Captain James Hurd. Maynard wrote, quote, In my travels and interviews, I encountered men who spoke highly of Captain Williams, but who were reluctant to say much about John Johnston. I encountered men who praised Johnston, but were reluctant to talk about Williams. I soon got in the habit of unofficially labelling my interviewee as either a Johnston man or a Williams man. But there was one thing on which Williams men and Johnston men universally agreed. They all had the highest regard for Captain James Hurd." So loyalties may have been somewhat split, but Heard was a very important addition to the salvage crew. Quote, when Captain Heard joined the Claymore, we became a team, unquote, one of the crew told Maynard. And importantly, along with the logbooks and records that Johnston and Williams kept, Heard wrote candid and interesting letters home to his wife, at least weekly, which were kept by the family, thankfully, and these proved to be very valuable in Maynard's reconstructing the story of the Niagara salvage. Hurd was well-liked and excellent at managing his crew, being attentive and thorough in all things. In the dull evenings he began teaching the younger men valuable mariner skills, such as reading charts, plotting courses, the use of the sextant, and so on. Their downtime was being productively spent, and there was a lot of exasperating downtime. But at last, after all their searching and the frustrating delay in getting to the actual salvage work, on January 31st, 1941, they located the Niagara on the seafloor. But there were still some difficulties to solve before they could begin recovering the gold. Not least, they had to figure out how to keep the claymore still above the dive site so that the bell could be safely deployed, and that was a massive challenge. They constructed a number of moorings around the wreck that could anchor the boat at several points, keeping it in place, withstanding the local currents, tidal movement and some of the weather conditions on the surface. So they now had a pretty good system, and diving was to begin in earnest. Jack Johnson, or his equally intrepid brother Bill, refined the operations and communications over time, When first deployed at the salvage site in February to begin operations, they found that the bell would spin on its eight-minute descent so awfully that the diver could not help but throw up. Jack decided that tall gumboots would be an essential bit of kit to save them from standing for hours in their own vomit. Ooh, yuck. (laughs) Another regular addition after a particularly violent deployment was the helmet to stop them from being concussed when they were knocked around inside the metal diving bell. By plaiting the ropes together they were able to reduce the spinning in time but unexpected jolts might occur without warning if something snagged so the headgear remained a wise idea. And then they needed to figure out just how and with what they were going to blast their way into the bullion room. The acquiring of the explosives and the experimentation with detonating the gelignite underwater was hair-raising and not at all good for the local fish. But eventually, with the help of Lieutenant Commander Hayes of the Royal New Zealand Navy, with his 20-year experience of underwater explosive use, they designed a system that worked. With the sketches of the vessel that Johnston had made, they sighted themselves over the wreck in the best position and on April 25th, 1941, they began carefully blasting holes in the vessel that would give them some access to the gold. Those poor fish. The Johnston brothers noted the sea life there, quote, varied from the ferocious to the beautiful, from giant eels, mako sharks and full-bellied harpoch, to jellyfish so lovely in form and colour that it was difficult to believe in them, unquote. Drifting down in the bell they would see the aquarium-like blue-green water inhabitants, schools of flashy, shimmering fish darting about. Then further down, the larger deep-sea species, including giant eels. There was one hulking devil with a head as big as a seal's. I hated him so much that I would find myself instinctively making faces at him. As if he cared. (laughs) He would pass by my windows with the utmost contempt. How he and his sort managed to escape our explosions was a mystery. Unquote. During May, the Navy was still undertaking a dangerous task of minesweeping in the Gulf, and around this time they lost one of their vessels, Puriri, to a mine. Five of the 22 crew were killed, and a further five were injured, so it was a very serious incident. Maynard notes that at this time, only a total of 20 mines had been accounted for or detonated, including the two that had sunk the Niagara and the single mine that sunk the Puriri. They couldn't know at that time that there were still 208 more across the area. Placing the charges to gain access to the decks was a very fastidious process. The exact amount of charge laid in the precise place to affect the desired result was essential. They did not want debris and possibly gold bars scattered or covered. The diving bell would have to be in place to see and supervise the placing of the explosive from the surface by means only of the divers instructions. Then the bell would be withdrawn and the ship moved to a safe place before detonation. A single placement might take up to four hours. Afterwards, the bell would return to the Niagara to see if the charge had worked as expected and to guide the grabber in, carefully removing any resulting blast debris before the next move could be contemplated. So much time was spent on external delays, time taken in preparation or access to the site and ascent and descent Luckily, despite the sometime frustration at the job dragging on, they were pretty patient men, willing to do the preparation work required. By June, the salvage team had made it to the bullion room walls. Johnston had made a model of the ship, and each time they blew a hole or winched sections off the Niagara, getting through the hull and the deck structures, he removed the equivalent from the model to reflect their progress and so that the machinery operators on deck had an understanding of what they were working with below them. One particularly exciting advance was the carefully placed charge that blew off the bullion room door. Maynard noted that this door is now on display at Kelly Tarleton's Shipwreck Museum at the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. The Navy wrapped up its sweeping activities mid-July, having by then disposed of 71 mines in the area, and the Claymore crew could at last operate with less restriction. But by then, of course, more severe weather was upon them, so conditions remained pretty unpleasant. By mid-August, they also had a representative from the Navy on board, who was invited to see how the diving bell performed. The Navy would always have an interest in any new developments in the diving field, and he spent a week observing, even taking a dive in the bell on one occasion. Despite the shambolic look of the decrepit old claymore, he was impressed by the team, the diving bell, and the operation in general. Towards October, with the crew then ready to attempt to access the gold bullion room, Williams had to inform the bank of their status, as they required a bank official to be in place before any of their bullion was touched, and they sent Victor nearly out to the Claymore to be their man on the spot. Taylor recorded that Williams had a metal apron fabricated and fitted to the grabber, which could be swung underneath the closed grab jaws in preparation for the lifting of the gold to the surface. It had high sides and would be large enough to catch anything falling from the teeth of the grab on its ascent to the boat deck. After all that work, no one wanted an ingot to slip out and be lost on the seafloor once they had gotten so close to the treasure. The work was always necessarily slow as each time the diving bell would be lowered to just beside the intended work site, the grabber would be verbally guided to the correct place by the diver watching on before it was dropped and grasped the debris. But the bell would need to be relocated away from the site before the grabber moved its haul to ensure minimal risk. Then back they all went into position to take a second bite. And this process was fraught, risking each manoeuvre something snagging or falling. And more than once one of the divers found their diving bell snagged, and they would be stuck there while they figured out how to untangle or release the snared lines. Early October, having blown the bullion door off its hinges, the engineer was working on getting some lighting down there. In the coming days, they removed another section of wall and then had an opening of around eight foot by six foot to get the bell or the grabber in. Now ready to attempt lifting the gold, Williams requested the Navy provide some security, but such assistance was not forthcoming and he would have to risk transporting the bullion unescorted. Williams also arranged for a couple of journalists to join them on board, to record the story so it could be told when the security embargo was lifted. And so, with Neely, the bank's representative watching on, on October 13th, Johnson took the bell down to supervise the grabber, lifting the first of the gold. Johnston recalled directing the grabber into place from his vantage point inside the diving bell. Quote, "Hold it! Take it over the bridge keel a bit. Over a bit more. Hold it! I think she's right over it now, Skipper. Lower gently. now drop it and take a bite." Unquote. Taylor added, he'd heard the grab bump at the chosen drop point and make a dull thud as though it had struck a wooden object. He was surprised not to hear the clang of the metal on metal. Then, take up the grab. I want a good look at it this time, so take it slowly. And he felt pretty sure they had grasped something of value this time, Unquote. So up Johnston came to see what it was he thought he'd seen below. Quote, never was a grab treated so tenderly or with more respect. Arms were stretched to prevent it hitting the bulwarks and to guide it gently to its destination on the well deck, where it disgorged its heavy box, foul with mud and smelling like the devil. In a mash of decaying sawdust lay two massive ingots, so shiny that they might have come hot from the mint. Each was about a foot long, four inches broad, an inch and a half thick, and thirty-four pounds in weight." Their first attempt had been successful and relief must have washed over them. Watched by the journalists and the bank official, the gold bars were inspected and identified from the individual markings cast on each one, shining untarnished after their sixteen months in the waters of the Harakigol. The crew cheered, their morale now lifted, and as Williams insisted they marked the momentous occasion with a formal toast, they all made their way to the ship's saloon for a celebratory drink. With no radio on board, though, the outside world was still none the wiser. The following day would have been an anticlimax, not very productive, but the one after, they managed nine boxes. The recovery then to date on board was valued at that time around £85,200. As Maynard noted, this was already more than three times the amount the bank had outlaid in attempting the salvage. Bad weather prevented another try in the days following, so they took the first haul to Fungarei to be transported to the Bank of New Zealand for safekeeping. Nearly issued williams with a receipt for the gold that he saw deposited at vangarai after williams earlier and frequent requests for navy communications to be made available on the claymore which were always rejected only then with some pressure from the bank no doubt would the navy finally yield and install the one-way radio telephone so they could advise when they were bringing in the next shipment or report any trouble Quote, they actually recognise our existence, commented Captain Heard wryly, though we could have disappeared without trace up till now, and nobody would have cared a twopenny dam. It just goes to show what a few bars of gold will do, Unquote. And then they headed back out to the wreck. Conditions were variable, but they managed to recover another 16 bars before returning again to Whangarei on October 22nd. So it was a slow start. Weather interfering with their operations, but they had managed 45 gold bars in three diving trips. The next three successful dives brought up 57 more. Early November they had to remove a little more debris to get access to the remaining gold, and on the next trip to the bank they had 146 bars on board, over 1.5 tonnes of gold. On the ninth, they managed to recover 92 bars in one day, their record for that operation. After four more trips at the wreck, the salvage team had recovered 541 gold bars out of a consignment of 590. So not a bad effort given the difficulty with the deep diving for the time. The crew were ecstatic. Contacting the bank on November ninth, Williams wrote, quote, I have given a lot of consideration to the problem of whatever balance may remain, as it will be somewhat difficult to know when to stop trying to recover them and possibly more difficult still for the Bank of England to realise why, since we've got so many we cannot get the lot. In the first place, some boxes have been lost from the grab, and although we think this loss is restricted to three, we do not know. Secondly, although we think that the grab reaches all parts of the strong room area, in the long run there is no certainty that one or more boxes are so placed as to make them impossible for the jaws to get hold of them, having in mind once more the angle of the repose of the wreck. Recently part of the internal structure of the bullion room came up in the grab, and there was not a single rivet left in it. The room must be hanging by a proverbial thread, and that even a small shock will send the lot to the bottom. From this I have decided, therefore, to continue grabbing until two hundred unsuccessful bites have been made, after which it would seem to me to be useless trying any more. There is, of course, the possibility that some should remain, and should this be a substantial sum, then I think we should consider sending Johnston to America to inquire into the possibilities of helium gas use with a flexible dress, or whether the articulated suit would be of any assistance. We will have exhausted the usefulness of our present appliances. So Williams was feeling like they were close to the end of the exercise, but he was willing to give the team every opportunity to find the last ingots before leaving the site, and they continued on into early December. On their last effort, the logbook reported, "'Despite the unfavourable conditions, Mr Johnston was able to raise 23 grab loads from the bullion room. In none was there anything but small pieces of concrete, broken spoons and other small items of table silver, but no gold.'" Since the last bar was recovered, the grab has made forty nine unsuccessful bites." Unquote. They took the lights back down, and nothing was seen that might be recovered. Hurd also descended into the bullion room to confirm Johnston's observations. Quote, At four twenty, Mr. Johnston managed to place the bell right in the room in such a position that every corner could be plainly seen. He reported it as having been cleaned right out. Unquote. Two bars were later seen wedged in the steel foundation angle of D deck, but despite many attempts they were not able to dislodge them with the equipment available at the time. Sunday, December 7th was to be their last day attempting any recovery. Taking the diving bell to another area they discovered two more bars, and working for many hours to nudge these into a position where they might successfully be grabbed, the last two bars were recovered. The total now 555 from 590, an exceptionally good result given the limitations of the era. And so they packed up their equipment and made preparations to clear the area. Taylor wrote, Of the 11 months and three weeks which had passed since the commencement of operations, the actual working time was less than three months. In that short period, the divers had survived a thousand dangers and every other member of the party had lived through an ordeal such a few men would willingly endure. One of the crew members recalled, quote, "'During the course of the recovery of the gold, we all thought that we'd be made wealthy men and not have to work again. This was our great hope,' unquote. And this would have been a fair enough expectation because of the usual reward expected by those salvaging otherwise lost goods, up to 50% of its value sometimes.' But I'm puzzled as to why they were not aware of the negotiated agreement Williams had already agreed to, up front. The men on the claymore had worked in exceptionally hazardous conditions, through winter, in a tough environment, and with the presence of real and regular danger, working in amongst live sea mines, in a dodgy boat, using equipment that was right at the present day cutting edge, engineering-wise, and not entirely proven when it came to the glass, for example. So perhaps with the really very impressive success they had achieved they felt a bigger reward might have been appropriate over and above their early agreement but the bank of england had drawn up a rather tight contract with William salvage company and it was not clear to me that the crew were aware of that they seemed to think they'd need to wait and see what shook out for them once the job was wrapped up those outsiders who'd seen the salvage in action were well aware of the crew's extraordinary exertions Maynard notes that even nearly the bank official on the Claymore wrote to his seniors regarding the great success, an exceptional effort put in by those involved, suggesting that one of the recovered gold bars could be set aside, and medals struck from it to reward the crew. But of course, he'd clearly forgotten who he was working for. The big banks did not make such gestures, and every cent was to be accounted for. Before they packed up to leave the salvage area for the last time, the crew were offered the opportunity of descending in the diving bell and, surprising to me, they all jumped at the chance. Even the banker took the opportunity to see what working in the chamber was like. At 7pm, the last man descended with Bill Johnston and amazingly, when they reached 240 feet on this last descent, the glass that Isaacs had been fretting about all this time finally succumbed to the pressure, cracking from side to side across one of the portholes. The trusty phone inside was working and they were quickly brought to the surface safely, before it could collapse altogether. But what absolutely astounding timing! The job was now deemed completed, and William ceased writing in the Claymore logbook. They began dismantling the mooring buoys that they'd erected over the dive site, and just to remind them of the constant danger they'd been working under, One mooring boy was found to have a live mine entangled around it. The crew lowered the claymore's ensign three times in a salute to the Niagara and apparently sang the Maori farewell song Po Aturo, or Now Is The Hour. And I've used a couple of snippets from various versions of that song during this episode, and I'll put links on the website. same date, December 7th, that the Claymore were farewelling the Niagara, across the dateline on the morning of their December 7th Pearl Harbour would be attacked and the Pacific War would begin. New Zealand and Australia would now be much closer to the action and there would soon be Japanese submarines and attack fighters in our own harbours along with the remnants of the German mines laid in our waters. When the Claymore had completed the dismantling of the moorings and finally arrived at the Fangarai Harbour, The men were informed that Japan had declared war on Great Britain and the USA. The New Zealanders returned home while the Australians sailed back to theirs, arriving to find Australia preparing itself for a much more local war. Soon afterwards, in January of 1942, Japanese subs were laying mines around Darwin when one was sunk by the Australian Navy, leaving it in 150 feet of water. They wished to search the vessel for code books and any other intelligence that could help them prepare, and American divers had tried to get access, but conditions were difficult and they had to abandon their efforts after several days. Williams Syndicate, known in Navy circles for the Niagara work, were asked to go to Darwin to see if they could assist. The Claymore crew were also asked to work with the Americans to help raise a sunken oil barge in Darwin Harbour. On the 19th, as they were all working away in that harbour, they heard a large air fleet approaching. Darwin was under full aerial bombing attack by 242 Japanese aircraft, intent on destroying the ships and the harbour infrastructure. There were approximately 250 casualties that day, and Darwin City was devastated. The submarine salvage had to be abandoned, and everyone who could had to leave Darwin, including the Williams Salvage Syndicate team. The newspapers now had bigger stories to tell, but the embargo on the Niagara salvage reports was lifted around this time, and articles about the Niagara gold salvage were published, sharing the front page with the Darwin bombing news. The amazing Niagara gold recovery gave the Australians a good news story of men with courage, skill and enterprise triumphing over great odds. Just the kind of positive stuff one wants to hear after such a shocking attack. The country would now have to gear up and face the possibility of invasion after so much previous experience of a fighting war in far-off lands while the family was safe at home. This would be a different war now. Afterwards, in relation to the Niagara salvage, Williams apparently made many approaches to various government officials, quote, setting out the details of the salvage and praising the courage of James Heard, the Johnson brothers and the rest of the crew, unquote in the hope of having his crew recognised for their exceptional efforts, as Prime Minister Menzies had suggested, but to no avail. Menzies was no longer the Prime Minister and the tone had changed. Some thought William's men would be amply rewarded by the banks and didn't need any additional accolades for their groundbreaking work others felt that at a time of war there would be those in direct service who might better receive any awards or honours. Though they seemed pretty quick to call on the team's skill and expertise when they wanted something salvaged from the sunken sub for the war effort and Williams and his team had jumped straight to it. Considering their eventual reward from the banks, I think there probably is some argument that their actions were motivated by more than just financial considerations. Indeed, most of the crew went on to work during the war years under Williams for a newly created Commonwealth Salvage Board, salvaging ships throughout the Pacific. James Heard wrote to the Prime Minister too, and Maynard quotes the response, saying, quote, This was the only official recognition, award or acknowledgement any member of the Claymore crew has ever received. 17th March 1942 Dear Sir, I desire to thank you for your letter of the 28th February in regard to the salvage of the bullion from RMS Niagara. I am most appreciative of the great difficulties involved in the operations and it is gratifying to know that Australians were associated with such a magnificent achievement. Yours faithfully, John Curt, Prime Minister. Well, that's quite the meagre pat on the back, really, isn't it? considering the pains they went to to recover the Commonwealth gold, intended for the war effort, by men who were testing newly engineered specialist equipment at the cutting edge of diving knowledge at that time. I expect there would have been many perhaps who imagined these men were already handsomely rewarded from their share of the bullion recovered, as was common, and not really in need of any official recognition, But sadly, despite their optimistic expectations, as they worked amongst the live mines and the crappy weather, this was not to be a wildly lucrative job that they'd hoped for, the Bank of England acting like Scrooge in the end. The final crew that came together in late April and stayed for the actual salvage operation included Shipmaster Williams, Chief Salvage Officer Hurd, the Divers, the Johnston brothers, Chief Engineer Jim Kemp, Engineer Alf Warren, Second Mate Joe Alcock, Fireman Arthur Bryant, Steward Stan Mitchell, Abel Seaman Bill Green, Nipper Lowe, the Ship's Boy, Les Michuski, Abel Seaman Tommy Nalda, Ray Nelson, the cook Stan Dayton. And able seaman Bluey Rigby, and these last six were New Zealanders. Maynard recorded the salvage costs and rewards by saying, quote, Firstly, the value of gold salvaged was two million three hundred eighty eight thousand nine hundred fifty three pounds. Thus, the syndicate received as its two point five per cent reward fifty nine thousand seven hundred twenty three pounds sixteen shillings. From this, it had to deduct Approximately 10,000 for the manufacture of the observation chamber and other equipment. The wages and expenses of the salvage over that year were to be paid by the Bank of England and amounted to approximately 25,000 pounds. At completion of the salvage, the Syndicate submitted a statement of expenditure requesting an additional 10,000 pounds, four shillings and sixpence for the balance of wages, including special wages and overtime. This amount covered the bonuses promised to the men and the £3,000 bonus, or danger money more like, that was promised to John Johnston. So, aside from the reward percentage of gold recovered, the costs to the bank would have amounted to around £35,000 from a nearly £2.5 million recovery. And here's where we will express no surprise at all. The Commonwealth Bank said they were not authorised to pay that last invoice, but they would forward the account to the Bank of England. The Bank of England said, looking at their contract, they've already discharged their contractual liability, and though, quote, reluctant to appear niggardly, I should find it difficult to recommend payment over and above the contract, unquote. So it looked like Williams would not recover the outstanding wages owed. (laughs) I bet he was wishing he'd held on to those last recovered ingots until the account was submitted and paid. Anyway, Williams did pay the promised bonuses from the 2.5% reward amount already received, which, of course, was going to reduce the reward pot for all the others. The Combank did at least follow up by advising the Bank of England that the Commonwealth Crown Solicitor, quote, has now advised me that in his opinion the claim of the syndicate is probably chargeable against the expenses of the operation. Moreover, he states that in his opinion, a court would likely hold the charges reasonable in respect of the contract and award a reasonable amount in comparison with the costs of other dangerous salvage ventures. In view of this, you may decide to meet the claim. Unquote. In another miserly move, the Bank of England did agree, then, to pay the crew's bonuses, but not that promised to Johnston. I guess he was wishing he'd slipped one of the gold bars into his diving bell, too, by then. And who would blame him? This was not very gentlemanly behaviour by the venerable Bank of England. After Williams' men had provided their special national services rendered, as requested, we must remember what an exceptional and dangerous job they had all signed up for, something absolutely new and unproven at that time. If my back-of-the-envelope calculations are correct, and if the 2.5% reward money was evenly distributed between the 16 crew, and it's probably not likely, I'm expecting the syndicate got a good share, at best the crew would have had their wages paid and a bonus of around £3,000 reward for their dangerous and uncomfortable year's work. Not a bad amount of money for the day if they'd got it, but not the bonanza they might have expected if they'd been able to claim the normal salvage reward. The bank clearly got the best deal ever in negotiating with Williams. In later years, one of the crew, Jim Kemp, did consider putting in a claim for salvage that might have seen him awarded the more usual 50% reward, but while his solicitor suggested that they would have been able to claim salvage rights and likely be successful, he'd left his claim too late. The statute of limitations date had by then passed. I think we can assume the bank might have thrown everything at a case that might have forced them to give over half the value of the salvaged gold, though. Taylor records that at the completion of their salvage attempt in December 1941, Williams and Hurd had both been satisfied that the remnants of the bullion shipment would remain beyond human reach for all time. But after the war ended, Johnston was keen to return to the Niagara and try to locate those 35 missing gold bars, under the usual salvage arrangements this time, Apparently, Williams objected to his plan, and they had such a falling out that they never spoke again. Of course Johnston needed to get backers and financiers to even try. He was hopeful of building a solid diving chamber that might have a mechanical arm and claw directly attached. And he spoke to the Bank of England, not about a contract, but about the right to salvage. And this time they agreed that salvage rights would give him 50% of any gold recovered. So there's a kick in the teeth for the Claymore crew, I feel, though I was hopeful that Johnson would get his plan to work and get some more reasonable reward. In May of 1953, working with the British Risdon Beasley Salvage Company and their three ex-Navy divers, Johnston now working largely as as an advisor by then, he located the wreck and directed them to the bullion room. They had a diving bell similar to the one he'd used 12 years earlier, which he described as smaller and less cumbersome. But they also had an armoured diving suit, an Iron Man, and this might give them the dexterity required to gather the last ingots. And the Iron Man is a sight to behold, so I'll try and put a picture on the website. But they found that the pressure at that depth stopped the diver in the suit from being able to move the articulated arms or leg joints, so it was pretty useless in the end, and they were back to using the mechanical grabbers again, albeit more modern and size-appropriate machines. Johnston went down in the bell and found the wreck, now covered in kelp, and he could recognise where he was and tried to have them manoeuvre to the opening of the bullion room, but with all the new growth it was hard to locate. The younger divers cleared the area over the next few days and noted that the decks had crumpled somewhat, the bullion room now covered with the collapsed A deck, and it took them a good two months to open the room for access it would be many more weeks before they found their first gold bar. But in the weeks following that first recovery, they located and recovered 30 ingots in total. Good work, Johnston. After that expedition, 585 of the original 590 gold bars had been accounted for. Maynard reminds us that, as of the date of his writing at least, those five bars were assumed to still remain somewhere in the disintegrating wreck. Though with developments in deep-sea diving, it's always possible some intrepid diver has, by now, found one or more of the five lost bars, I guess. The gold remains a siren call for some, as I found a fairly recent New Zealand news report of a poor diver found deceased at the Niagara dive site. It doesn't say so, but one could imagine a single diver taking a risk to try his luck there. Maynard wraps up his research by noting that the rusty, broken, propeller, dodgy old claymore was returned to the New Zealand government when the syndicate left, where it did service defending the Auckland harbour as a, quote, boomgate vessel, unquote, a ship moored across the entrance to stop unauthorised access. Williams continued working on his various ventures and his family business lived on. He served as a chairman on the Australian National Shipping Line and was knighted for his services to shipping. John Johnston edited the 16mm footage he took during the Niagara salvage operation and showed the resulting silent film, providing live commentary at venues all around the country into the 1960s. In my very hasty look, I could not find a copy to view. A more thorough look may turn it up somewhere, I hope. It seems Captain James Hurd returned to Queensland and continued in the salvage business, and became a member of the Maritime Board of Queensland in 1943. In 1953, he formed some kind of marine surveying company with Captain George Gatt, but sadly he died only three years later. Jeff Maynard's book, Niagara's Gold, How an Australian and New Zealand team salvaged eight tonnes of gold from a German minefield, published in 1996, can also be hard to find it now in libraries, which is sad because it's still a fascinating story that I'm sure many readers would love but Maynard also produced an audiovisual documentary of the same title, I think, which included some of the interviews and footage he gathered in researching the story. Again, I was disappointed that time constraints and COVID-dividually stopped me from viewing a copy in time. Anyway, I found the details in Maynard's book fascinating, and I would recommend it to anyone with an interest, There's another title that was published in New Zealand, which I was very disappointed not to get hold of too, called Deep Water Gold, The Story of RMS Niagara, The Quest for New Zealand's Greatest Shipwreck Treasure, by Keith Gordon. I'll put that in the reference list too. Keith Gordon appears to still be monitoring the Niagara and is active in trying to alert the public to other serious damage resulting from its sinking, particularly the oil that is still in the rusting vessel. Keith Gordon stated, 72 years after the war, the wreck is still a clear and present threat to the region and to our natural heritage. We are at present discussing the situation with the authorities and it is hoped that action will be taken to carry out a risk assessment survey of the wreck to determine the potential environmental danger that the wreck still presents. There is also a great short video news report called race to prevent the potential oil spill from niagara shipwreck or hungary which i'll provide a link to it's worth a look also because it includes some snippets of footage probably from maynard's documentary and perhaps using johnston's original film there's also recent footage of divers at the wreck they seem to be carting around multiple scuba tanks and clearly it's still a hazardous dive even today but it's so interesting to see them floating around freely where johnston had to be bolted into his metal chamber Anyway, I was fascinated when my friend told me about this amazing episode in her family history, a genuine treasure hunter, and I really enjoyed finding out more about it. This Australian company with an Australian and New Zealand crew really achieved something spectacular. The deepest salvage dive in the world at that time, under the most perilous and difficult conditions. I hope you found it interesting too. I need to leave behind these watery stories for a while now. I feel like there's been a lot lately. Next time I intend to do a brief and niche little episode before returning to something more meaty, perhaps. I'll remind listeners that I no longer produce a newsletter through the MailChimp application. There seems to be a link out there somewhere that I cannot find that's still taking subscriptions. But I now include any extra resources of interest that I find in the Australian Histories Podcast episode web pages, even if not directly used in the episode writing. So anyone interested in more detail should head to the episode entries at AustralianHistoriesPodcast.com.au to see what's been included. And I'm moving my main email address to ozhistpod at gmail.com. That's A-U-S-H-I-S-T-P-O-D at gmail.com. They just do a better job of recognising spam. It should help me not to miss the genuine emails buried amongst the outrageous amount of spam. Drives me mad. I didn't get a podcast review ready in time this month either and I'm still working on the Australian Histories Podcast webpage listing recommendations that I spoke about last month. But, you know, it'll happen sometime soon. So thanks for listening. I hope to have something new ready for you by the end of next month, but it is going to be a time challenged task. So I'm just going to do my best and we'll see if I can get to it on time. Have a safe and happy few weeks anyway, and I will catch you next time. Cheers.